when you when when you know what the critical issues are and you learn about them and you know what can be done, well, my brain can't go. I can't say, oh, I got I'm going to go and play golf. You you, you can't do that. Um, I, I can't anyway. G'day and welcome to episode 33 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and today I'm excited to be sitting down with Rob Gell. But before we do that, I just wanted to say a quick note. Bloody good on you, Melbourne. We're finally heading in the right direction. Rob Gell is probably best known for his decades on the TV screens in Melbourne as a resident weather presenter across multiple networks. But behind this, Rob is an incredibly innovative thinker and extremely entrepreneurial guy. He's always been incredibly passionate about nature, science, and he's very realistic with his outlook on how we can make progressive change for a better future. He shows no signs of slowing down in what should be his semi-retirement years. He's founded one startup, working in another while assisting another couple of businesses, all with a sustainability lens. As you'll find out behind Rob's energy and drive, is an ambition for a better future, particularly with his granddaughter in mind. I'm calling this episode a lesson with Rob Gell because I don't really know how else to phrase it. He's one incredibly knowledgeable person who's left me with a heck of a lot of stuff to go and look at. And I don't think the show notes are big enough to reference all the various people and articles that he brought up. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy this chat. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast, Rob. G'day, Ollie the Hare. Nice to see you again. (laughs) And you're not allowed to say that again. <laughs> Rob, I suppose, yeah, just starting off, we had a bit of a chat beforehand, but how have you found this year for yourself? Obviously, you're based in Melbourne. We've been locked down quite a bit, but you're managing to keep yourself busy? Yeah, look, it's, I think it's a matter of being adaptable. Uh, and, you, I mean, what's, what's your alternative? You know, sit and get fat? No. Uh, so, you know, you've got to work out how you're going to maintain an exercise regime, work out how you're going to maintain a good diet and work out how you're going to keep your brain agile. Now, fortunately, uh, I've got, a, you know, I'm involved in a couple of bit, well, more than two businesses, but two I'm focused on. I've got a couple of others as well, uh, which are all in your agricultural space. We can go through them if you wish. Um, but uh, one of them, you know, they, they are startups in a sense. One's more mature, uh, but it's doing a range of different things. And I think it's, it's critical to be able to, you know, keep your mind active. I mean, I'm sort of, you know, second half of my 60s now. Well, after retirement, I don't intend retiring, as you suggest, uh, because in many ways I, I sort of say I've only just learned what I know and I'm only, I'm only, I'm only just now becoming valuable uh, because I've got a life's experience and I, and I keep up to date with global trends as best I can, particularly in my sort of sustainability space as we're running a sustainability practice, but we're also looking at, a range of different products and services that we advocate for or support or introduce to clients uh, because it's important that we change. Um, and I mean, I've got a good, good mate who said, Rob, we need to develop a lust for change. And we do. I mean, we're terribly comfortable in Australia. We get it. We've got it so good. Uh, we really, when, you know, it's, a, it's that saying, you know, who wants to change? Everybody sticks their hand up. And who's, who wants to lead the change? And all the hands go down. And you, you've actually got to be, you've got to understand that if we're going to be sustainable, we're not sustainable now. That's why I largely boycott sustainability awards because we haven't got much to celebrate. Uh, so it's a matter of keeping up to date where the, where the good things are, ad- adapting to change circumstances and making the most of it. So you've touched on best intro that there's ever been on the podcast. There's a few things I want to pick your brain on. And one is, essentially around that, the role of governments, around the business side of things. But to start off with, I want to know more about you and going down the path of weather presenting and being behind the camera. Was that always on the cards for you or was that something you fell into off your no, science? probably um, the last thing on my mind. I, uh, I got to Melbourne University in 1971 as a science undergrad. Uh, interesting time, of course. Uh, I was in, in that year, I was in the last call-up to go to Vietnam. So it was a dynamic uh, time globally. Uh, global communications were just opening up. I mean, for the first time ever, we are having more or less live pictures from war zones. Uh, we had 100,000 people in uh, Burke Street in Melbourne twice in 1971, demonstrating against the war. We've only just done that again 
with the student strike for climate was at the beginning of last year in 2018, had 100,000 again in the streets in Melbourne. So it's taken uh, 40 years mm. for, for the youth of Australia to get back to be as aggressive as it was in its protests as, I, as we were in the early days in the 70s about the Vietnam War. So it was a pretty dynamic time. The other thing, uh, it was the tail end of the first environment revolution, which probably began in the early 60s with Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which was the first treatise on pesticides and heavy metals in our environment. And a whole range of new things coming through onto our reading list as young science undergrads that our professors were putting on our reading list are brand new. So Garrett Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons, Paul Ehrlich wrote The Population Bong, the, the, the Club of Rome came out with Limits to Growth. So these were the first real treatises on, you know, a, a new way of thinking, uh, which is kind of the basis, you know, you're, you're now ex continuing to explore that through humans and agriculture. Uh, so it's man's impact on, you know, on the planet. So I then uh, I graduated, I was invited to go and teach straight after I did an honours, whatever, started a master's, and I was invited to go and teach in a Bachelor of Environmental Science Education degree course, and I did that in 1975. So I uh, did that for four years. Um, Malcolm Fraser was the Prime Minister, cutbacks in education. So rather than continuing to be a young academic, which is where I was sort of headed, um, I said, oh, buddy, I'm gonna take the next job that offered to me. Now, as it happened, it was to do the weather on the television for Channel O, on the Channel O News. Um, Never heard of it. Yeah, it well, became 10. And, uh, <laughs> And I did that for then for nine years, but it was fascinating because uh, meteorology and climatology were subjects I could have uh, had a crack at uh, as a science uh, student. Uh, and I, but I avoided meteorology and climatology like the plague. Absolutely not interested. But so, but you know, for everybody listening, I'm a physical geographer. Uh, and a physical geographer, you know, geographers use maps and diagrams to tell stories. So it's not really, you need to understand the meteorology to do, to do be the weather presenter on the telly, but you're not going to, I mean, I, I, am, not, I am not going to duplicate the resources and the capability of the uh, Australian Bureau of Meteorology. But what yeah. I do need to be able to do is faithfully represent their information and communicate it to the audience. And that's what I, you know, developed a bit of a skill in. And so you're saying you're going down the academic path, but like even when you're doing the news, you're innovative and pitching ideas. So you were, I saw well, when I was reading up on you, that you were the first person to introduce the four-day weather forecast to the TVs. Yeah, well, it was interesting. There was a guy called uh, Eddie Dean who'd been the press secretary, I think, for Malcolm Fraser and Andrew Peacock in failed attempts to become prime minister. And Eddie was one of the news directors at Channel O, along with a bloke, called Michael Schulberg, who joined about the same time as me. Now, he came to my office at the Melbourne State College where I'd been teaching, and he said, have a look at this. And he showed me a videotape. The video was pretty new then, right? So in the Channel O newsroom in 1979, when I started, they had two videotape cameras. Mm -hmm. right? They're still using film, right? Yeah. So, you know, he came to my, he said, can you set up a video? I want to play you a video. So he came to my office at the, up the university. And he showed me a videotape of a bloke called George Fishback, who was doing the weather on one of the television stations in Los Angeles. And George was doing a seven day forecast. Now that's not so difficult in LA because the weather doesn't change from one day to the next. So, <laughs> uh, so Try I said, doing it in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. He said, can you do a seven day forecast? I said, well, no, I don't, you know, I, I, really, I really had no interest. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. The, the proposition came down from the principal of the college, actually, to our department. <clears throat> they're looking for a weather. Their, their proposition was they didn't want somebody from show business who knew all about how to present the weather, but nothing about the weather. And they didn't want somebody from the Weather Bureau who knew all about the weather, but nothing about how to present it. So they'd actually worked out they wanted a teacher type person, which was, I thought, was kind of reasonable kind of proposition. So I said, no, but look, you know. Um, I can present anything really, you know, you know, all at 26 years of age, I was pretty good in those days. So it was a matter of, um, you know, working. So you, so you go and make friends with the guys at the bureau. Hey guys, I've got a job to do. Let's work together. Right now, 
it's fascinating because in those days, the Bureau said, oh, shit, no, we're not going to do a four-day forecast. We'd, we'd get too much complaints. I said, well, oh, okay. So they used to give me the info. So once I worked out, oh, okay. So they basically gave me Rob Gill's four-day forecast on a plate, but they didn't want to own it. They're laughing. I mean, they're happy to now, but they, but they didn't know anything about communications. And it was about, right, so in those early days, people on other television stations said, what do you do, how do you, how do you deal with a criticism? And I said, well, don't get any. Because I actually legitimately say, oh, this is what the Bureau thinks, or but if that cold front's slow, it's going to be this. You have to provide an explanation rather than claiming, you know, this is Channel 7's weather or this is Channel 10's weather, and you take complete ownership of it, then of course you're riding for a fall. So we didn't ever do that. And I didn't ever do that. And it's about, you know, taking that sort of educative sort of position. So well, look, let me, let me explain to you what we've got. This is science. Uh, we can't be as confident today. I reckon by Friday we'll be really confident. But then you'll have another day. Hey, look, we're really confident. I'll give you four days plus because this is the, it's a settled pattern and we, this is the way it's, it's going. But it, so if you, it's, it's about being reasonable with people and communicating properly. And, and that seems similar across everything that, like... Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Particularly, I'll say agriculture, we're very fact-based when we come to communicating things. Is that something a frustration for you as such where it is that people just really struggle to articulate things in a way that people understand? Well, that's a skill, uh, I believe. And I, I, you know, um, I've got a bit of it. I'm not, I'm not the best teacher going around, but I, I made a career in a sense out of communication in one way or another, whether it's science education or you know, doing a bit of stuff on the telly. But I just, you know, it comes back to me, dear old mum, passed a few, you know, Oh, five years ago, 92, wasn't it? And she used to quote me, Polonius from Hamlet, you know, to thine own self be true, it must follow us the night today, thou canst not then be false to any man. I mean, if you, if you, do, if you give it straight, you know, who's going to call you out for making an honest mistake? But if you, I mean, that's why I despair watching our politicians sometimes. I mean, you know, there is, you know, they, they either, you either know immediately they're not telling you everything which immediately puts you on the back foot or you, or, or they're not properly briefed and they're talking crap and you go, well, this person doesn't know what he's talking about or she doesn't know what he's talking about. Or, but, but the ones that are honest with you, you know, it, it, you get it immediately. There's a wonderful book by, what's his name? It's called Blink. And it basically says you're somebody, you, you sum up someone you meet in 60 seconds. What's it called? Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell. Oh yeah, he's got some good ones. He basically says, you know, you, you know, I walk into you, we met, what, 12 months ago thereabouts, and you, you sum somebody up. So it is, you go, this looks like a reasonable black. <laughs> How do you say your last name again? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Uh, but but yeah, that's pretty immediate. And I don't know why politicians don't understand that. Mm. And it's really, and, you know, and it's, and it's like, you know, for, for farmers, for people working in agriculture, they need honest information. So... You know, I used to love it actually. When you know, so in those early days on the telly, when we actually we actually worked out how to get a feed of the bureau's radar off, you know, like absolutely behind the scenes, they gave it to us. So we were putting up radar. It was really sort of it was like you know, black and white images on a coloured thing, but it was giving some information. Then I ran into a potato farmer at Narandra, and he said, "Oh no, mate, 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 the silence from six o'clock till half past six, the silence in our house." Because of weather, because you've got the radar. I've got a quarter of a million bucks worth of spuds in the ground out there, and I know there's a cold front coming this week. I want to know exactly when it's coming through. Because otherwise, I'm going to leave the bloody things in the ground if it gets too wet. 
Yeah. So I mean, you, you so you know, and you know, then you go to strawberry farmers at King Lake and whoever else, and you realise that people are absolutely dependent on good, credible information. So as soon as you sort of understand the importance of that, you just try and deliver in whatever time you've got available, you know, the, the, the essence of what you think, and you learn yourself the whole time, mm. you learn the essence of what you think they need. Now everybody can do that on their phone, thank God, which is great. <laughs> well, get yourself out of a job. So, so when you were doing all the the weather side of things, was were you doing these startup entrepreneur kind of businesses on the side as well, or, or was no, this something start, that didn't start? I did. Uh, I mean, a couple of interesting things, and just to make the point about you know maps and diagrams telling stories. I, one of the things we did at Channel O in the old, you know, very old days. We did two things that are now still not even done properly on most weather services. I used to collect, I used to actually drive to the Weather Bureau from the university in the afternoon and pick up two halves of a black and white satellite photograph that we'd stick together with sticky tape and take a picture of it, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have digital imagery for satellites, but we did have satellite imagery. And so I'd have yesterday and there'd be a new one today and a new one tomorrow. And I worked out, oh, shit, if we can, what about I keep yesterday's photograph Instead of just picking up this afternoon's photograph, what about I get them to give me, we pay for one taken this morning as well. And we keep yesterday's, we do a, do a video dissolve from yesterday to this morning to this afternoon. We can make the clouds move. Yeah. We are the first in the world to do that. Channel 10 in Nunawading in Melbourne. There you go. Simple as that. The next thing we did, was I said, now I want to do, I want to take that pressure pattern the, the different map projections, so the, the, the satellite photograph you see very much, it was a, a satellite image, you could see the curvature of the Earth, but the map projection was not the same. So we actually physically manipulated the, the isobars to be the same map projection, and we put the isobars over the top of the satellite photograph. It had not been done in the world before. Yeah, well, right? yeah. Because they're just two different graphical ways of representing the same information. But all of a sudden, people understood what a cold front looked like on a satellite photograph. So in, in your whole years, from the late 70s until 2009 or whenever it was that you stopped on the weather front, what was the biggest change or the most substantial change that you kind of saw in that well, time? Well, a couple of things. I mean, back when I soon after I started or at the time that I started, we had 200 drifting sea buoys in the Southern Ocean. Uh, which improved the accuracy of forecasting enormously because up until then we just needed had a ship at sea out there where some blokes you know providing extra data we didn't we didn't have you know satellite photography was brand new had infrared photography so we could measure the temperatures of the tops of clouds so we could get an idea about you know some atmospheric physics um but that but sooner or, sooner or later those sea boys all got washed up or sank or whatever but Satellite imagery and computer grunt in, increased remarkably. So now we get an enormous amount of information. You know, people say, oh, the Weather Bureau, the forecast always wrong. Well, it's not actually. Uh, it's just that most people can't interpret what they hear. And a lot of the media distributing the forecast do it inaccurately. I mean, yeah. the number of days that I'll hear, uh, FM radio is the worst. Oh, it's another wet day coming up when I know the forecast very well is for a shower or two clearing. And I see showers and they call that rain or wet or whatever. And it's yeah. So we've, we've got this, you know, there's as much misinformation about whether information going out as there is good information. And audiences need to understand, it's a bit like, a bit like climate science. You have to choose uh, not what you listen to, who you listen to. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And that's one, was it from your early uni days that you got right involved in, I suppose, divulging yourself into the climate science and also talking on it or was this something that was yeah i was dragged into it a bit uh i mean uh in that space a couple of critically important things in 1987 finishing off at channel 10 010 i was invited by uh the television station was invited to send a, a crew to antarctica at a, at a critical time because the northern hemisphere nations were looking to open up antarctica for minerals and oil exploration so they didn't know I was a bit interested in that because of my background from early days at university. I had this sort of, you know, taught in environmental science degree courses and stuff. Um, so that was terrific. And that, when I came back, uh, long story short, I ended up on the council of the Australian Conservation Foundation. Peter Garrett was the president. 
really dynamic time from 89 through to 99, I think I had a role there. Uh, a really dynamic time politically. You know, Graham Richardson, the first um, Earth Summit in Rio in 92. Um, it, it was a really, you know, uh, it was a really dynamic period of time. Um, and so I got involved in a lot of those groups and I've, and I've, I've done a lot of, worked in a lot of, with a lot of uh, non-profit organisations. So ACF for 10 years, I sat on the Victorian Coastal Council for 17 years. Um, I chaired UNESCO Biosphere for 10 years in up until 2011. Uh, Greening Australia, a lot of your audience will know Greening Australia as a uh, landscape restoration organisation, tree planting stuff. I did 13 years there, including three years as national chair at the end and a whole bunch of other things. But it's really, um, once you understand that there are problem, problems, you really can't go back. Uh, and the climate thing linked back to my role on television. So I'm not a climate scientist, but I took, I've taken opportunities always that television gave me a public profile. People wanted to know about it. If I opened my mouth, I said, oh, let's get him. And if you got a bit of a skill as a presenter, we take the opportunity to present and impart information to people uh, who are desirous of hearing it pretty straight. Yeah. Um, and I still do that. Not as much as I, you know, the 2008, 9, I mean, 2008, I did 120 presentations in that. He was ridiculous. <laughs> Kevin Rudd trying to get his carbon pollution reduction scheme up. And Australians, under, what's this climate stuff? So I uh, did speeches all around the country, but I'd finished telly by then, well, largely finished telly by then. Um, yeah. In terms uh, of, well, so this is a thing that I see. So you're saying these conversations around change and the need for change today, like, so I've done a bit of research on you, Rob. Um, you, you'd mentioned in one of the talks you did that the Liberal Party in 1990, their party policy came out that we'd see a 20% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2000. But how much of the stuff, like, is just talk with no action broadly? Oh, it's interest, mate. I mean, the vested interests have taken over the whole climate science debate. I mean, the, the science is done, closed. Uh, Exxon understood it in the 60s. I mean, I mean, uh, so, so the history goes uh, for your audience, uh, anyone, you know, there, there'll be a math teacher in there somewhere. So there's a bloke called uh, Joseph Fourier, Fourier series. He's a serious mathematician, but in 1826, he was researching uh, atmospheric gases and thinking about ice ages, and he postulated that there were gases in the atmosphere that were controlling the Earth's temperature. So he postulated what we now know to be the greenhouse effect. John Tyndall, an English engineer, uh, did those experiments in his lab in about 1860-something and proved the greenhouse effect. So there's now the, the Maggie Thatcher 50, just had the 50th anniversary of the Tyndall Centre, named after him, which is one of the great climate science laboratories in the world because Maggie Thatcher said in 1970, we have to have a science centre focused on climate change because it poses such a serious risk. So they named it after John Tyndall. Uh, in 1896, a Swedish Nobel award-winning chemist by the name of Svante Arrhenius, was also looking at the ice ages and what caused them, published in the Philosophical Magazine in 1896, that if we double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're likely to increase the, global the mean global temperature by five degrees. It's physics, right? Mm. We understand do you know what the, so when he said that, what was the measurement in parts per million then? Uh, well, back in, in Arrhenius's time, it would have been uh, that 270 parts per million. Today, it's 415. So, so we've, we've, we've increased the concentration. So the, this, this point, I mean, when I was a schoolboy, it was uh, uh, 300 ppm, 0.03%. Now it's 0.04%. Right? So it's increased more than, you know, let's say 30 or 40% in my lifetime. Now, it's that 0.3% that has enabled life on Earth to evolve as it has, right? Yeah. On, you know, Venus has got 70% CO2 and the temperature is 480, right? So yeah. and you can look at the planets, um, you know, um, uh, Mercury closer to the sun, you've got a, your temperature ranges from about minus 28 to 260. Uh, uh, Mars, further away, temperature range is enormous. It's got lots of 
lots of CO2, but a very thin atmosphere, so not much atmosphere at all. So, you know, this is the, it's the, what they call the Goldilocks principle. Earth's just right. So a tiny little bit. So, you know, you get boneheads like Alan Jones who say, oh, you know, it's only 0.03%. How can it have any impact? Mate, without it, the temperature of Earth would be, average temperature of Earth would be minus 18. Right? right. So we have stable temperature we've had because of this tiny little bit of CO2 in our atmosphere, but we've increased its concentration by close to 40%. Yeah. Right? That's the trick. So, um, now, you know, you... I say to people, you know, people say, oh, I, don't, I don't believe the science. I said, oh, well, you my first response is, I'll say, you understand the physics of the radiative, for radiative forcing of gases, do you? And I say, what? Well, I say, well, look, if you don't understand the radiative forcing component of methane and CO2 and nitrous oxide, how can you argue with the physics? Oh, I don't believe it. Oh, I'm not interested in your beliefs, mate. It's that old line, you know, you're entitled to your own beliefs, but you're not entitled to your own facts. But it's funny because it is something that is so divisive because it's so misunderstood. It's bit, well, mate, because you've got the Koch brothers in the United States spending $100 million a year to produce the counter-argument, just like Big Tobacco did. But fortunately, the people are working it out. You know, I've got a little video clip from a dude on MSNBC, in the, you know, doing the stocks and shares, doing the Alan Kohler thing, whatever. And he said, look, you're not going to like this, but I'm out of fossil fuels. He said, look, they're great stocks. They provide great dividends. They're making shitloads of money, but people don't want them. People are selling them. They're like tobacco. The people have worked out that these are not stocks we want for my, for my superannuation. I don't, want, I don't want to leave this to my grandchildren. You know, I've got to get out of this to understand there's a problem. So the world's working it out. Uh, if, it, it would, would be good if Australia sort of dropped its shoulders and stopped postulating and stopped protecting the coal industry. I mean, the house has fallen out of all those stocks. I mean, Peabody and Anglo-American, their stocks have fallen by more than 50% in Australia. We've now got to, you know, I think that divestment globally from fossil fuel stocks is in excess of 4 trillion US dollars. We've now got 50% of Australia's trading partners have got zero carbon targets, including China, you know, We've actually got to smarten up in Australia um, and, you know, and really take our politicians to task. But, you know, we've got, you know, to be brutally honest, we've had a, you know, Tony Abbott made his Minister for Energy and Resources, a bloke in North Queensland whose brother owns a half a coal mine. Yeah. I mean, got a vested interest. I mean, so on this side, and this is the piece where when it comes to change at any level, like how much of it is the government's role, in your opinion, how much of it is like, private enterprises role or how much is it the consumer making decisions? Politicians just don't, you know, their primary objective is to stay in government. No, first keep my seat. So I stay in the house, preferably in government. So they're, they're trying to, you know, pick their way through the populace, through their electorate, Mm-hmm. Don't alienate them. Don't alienate them. Keep they just get enough votes to 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 win my seat without really. You know, very few of them take a principled position. So um, so so we we're not seeing leadership from we're not seeing leadership from parliamentarians. There are some. I mean, the EU is leading the world now. They have actually passed legislation in February for a green deal. Uh, AOC and her team in the in, in the Democrats, the young women in you know in. US have got a, a draft Green New Deal on the table. Um, if Biden, uh, you know, Biden as uh, as a potential president, they've got two trillion dollars to move to a green economy. We've actually got to understand this. But in Australia, uh, we're not being led properly. Um, I mean, by either of the two major parties, and and the Greens have got to hedge their bets a bit. Fortunately, uh, the finance sector globally is moving really fast. So we had five years ago, um, uh, Mark Carney, the managing director of the Bank of England, partnered up with Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, very wealthy man. And they started something called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, which basically says if you have a climate risk in your business, it needs to be declared because businesses need to run that way. So we now have a situation from 2017 where... Uh, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, ASIC, Reserve Bank, all saying 
you have to declare climate risk. If I'm running a business and I've got shareholders, I need to declare any risk to my business because my shareholders are shareholders in the company. I have to let them know about where the climate risk was. Well, most Australians wouldn't know where the climate risk was in the business. But uh, ASIC saying, or APRA saying, we'll put you in jail today as a company director if you don't declare that risk under the Corporations Act. Now, the financial sector globally has picked it up. So TC, TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, has now been running for five years and all of our banks have picked it up and they're all working that way. That's why, for example, ANZ, we can't get into coal because it's a risk and yeah. it's a risk to businesses. We now also have, just this year, uh, from similar group, using leveraging TCFT, a TNFT, which is the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, which will be of interest to your agricultural audience, because it's the financial sector understanding that we have two existential crises in the world today. The first is anthropogenic climate change, but the other one is ecosystem collapse, which in my mm. opinion is a greater risk in the short term than climate change. I mean, we've got you know 70% of global commercial fish stocks are at risk. 70, 70%. So fortunately our fisheries in Australia run pretty well, but elsewhere uh, they're not. But we need to, I mean, we've still got New South Wales has got increased clearing rates of something like 300% increase under Berejiklian. It's a disgrace. You know, we've, we've got, you know, we've got a landed biodiversity white paper in Australia that hasn't really hasn't been acted on. We've got a biodiversity strategy from 2017 that really hasn't been acted on. Uh, we ran a uh, Victorian Centre for Climate Change adaptation research for five years for 20 million bucks up to 2014. The outcomes of that really haven't been acted on. Uh, mm. So we really haven't got the leadership. But we are seeing big business understanding that their businesses depend upon understanding this because the long-term risk from climate change in particular to their business is fundamental. And we need to go back to sort of Gaylord Nelson from 1970 who said, unless we understand that our economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of our environment and not the reverse, uh, you know, we're, we're hiding to nothing. So big business is understanding that we have, they actually do need to live. They got the money. Mm. They, are, they control all the dough. So they've got to take this, their, their, their stakeholders and shareholders along and understanding it. And Deloitte have just come out with this, a new vision, saying, look, what we need to do to address anthropogenic climate change globally, it, it's cheaper to do it now than to wait another two, three, four, five years. It's exactly the same as what Sir Nicholas Stern said in 2006, advising the Blair government. Do it now, the cost is much less, but here we are, we, you know, we, we've, we've waited 14 years. We still, mm -hmm. we still haven't got a we didn't have climate change policy or energy policy in Australia. I mean, it's yeah. nonsense. So, you know, once we know where we're going um, and we set targets, as China has, as South Korea has, as Japan has, as the EU has, uh, as the UK has, as soon as we set targets, I mean, my experience is that as soon as you set targets, most companies in the countries beat those targets by decades, you know, by ages. Yeah. You know, I gave the example of a guy I met in the street this morning with, BMW gave themselves a target of having a hydrogen-powered BMW 7. This is back in 19, I'm thinking like 1990. They partnered up with Linda Air, which is a big global gas company. We want to work out how we're going to run a 7 Series on hydrogen. They gave themselves 20 years or something to do it, and they did it in two. <laughs> so, you know, if, if, as soon as you set the target and you set the milestones in place to achieve the target, people are like, oh, well, why don't we do a bit more? We need to generally exceed those objectives so how much of this though is is i suppose so oh, like on your points before around the big big end of town doing things larry fink of ceo yeah. of blackrock him setting the standard in 2018 or 19 with his letter to the ceos saying you need to be putting climate risk on on the balance sheet or we basically won't invest in your top top piece but um how much of this is going to be socially driven because it's the right thing to do versus the economics or do we can, can we have one without the other or it's... I think the economics is big time now. Uh, I mean, these companies realise... I mean, for example, Cummins Diesel, right? Every, you know, every Mack truck, you know, you'll have an audience and those about diesel engines, I'll bet. Cummins Diesel is going to be out of diesel by 2026. 20, they just bought a hydrogen company. They're going hydrogen. In all their trucks? Yeah. Holy heck. Right? So, you know, you got to understand Volkswagen's going to be all electric by 2025. 
four years, right? Volvo only sells hybrid or electric cars today. Really? Right? These changes are coming big time. Hydrogen's coming like a tidal wave and Australians, well, we hear about it. You know, Ross Garner wrote this fantastic book called Australia, uh, potentially a, um, energy superpower because we've got the potential to transform our energy economy using renewables, using solar in particular, but wind as well, mm. uh, biomass too, to actually, uh, you know, crack up a water molecule, molecules and produce hydrogen for all purposes. So you can actually think of hydrogen as a, as a, um, um, as a emissions free lossless battery. So once you've actually produced the hydrogen, you can just store it. You get no losses, but then you can put it back through a fuel cell and create uh, electricity and you can run your car as an electric car, or you can just burn the hydrogen without any emissions as you would a normal gas. Now Tasmania is planning on doing exactly that. They've got an excess of renewables for wind and hydro. So they're going to convert it to hydrogen. They're putting the hydrogen in their gas pipelines for that resident for residences. Cause they've got a new system with no leaks. They're already doing it in South Australia, someplace north of Elizabeth, where they've got, I think, 15% hydrogen going into the gas lines. Yeah, right. Uh, if they can make it, and it's, you know, once you, and, and the cost will plummet, like the cost of wind has, and like the cost of solar. Yeah. So, we're, you know, there's not a proposal for a Melbourne hydrogen hub now by the markets at Epping. And Thyssen Crook, big journal company, is going to put in a, 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 an electrolyzer there. They're going to collect the rainwater off the market roof. Solar panels on the market roof are going to produce the electricity to crack open that water and store hydrogen and put it into buses. Right? No emissions. That? No, yeah, right? Lots of technology involved. But so Garno's proposition is, you know, so, so we, you know, biggest, one of the biggest iron ore miners in the world. We've also got truckloads of truckloads. Lots and lots of bauxite for aluminium. But what do we do? We do the first piece. We take the bauxite to alumina, really simple technology. The world's got that. We've got one uh, aluminium mill at Portland. So we bring the bauxite all the way from Weeper in the Gulf, all the way down to Portland to smelt it. Bit of pork barreling, but anyway. any rate. But we don't, we, we don't have a high value aluminium extrusion mill in the country, right? We, we used to make steel springs for Mercedes Benz at Port Kembla. So we got that bit too. Uh, iron ore to pig iron, simple technology, the world's got it, no value add there. But the iron to steel, where the value is, we don't do that anymore. Although Sanjeev Gupta's got a steel refinery now, Wyala, um, running on renewable energy, right? So Garno's point is, we can become the energy, the, the low cost energy powerhouse of the world and actually value out our iron ore, value out our bauxite, value out all the other things that we mostly send overseas where the value add is. So yep. we become the manufacturing powerhouse, industrial powerhouse of the world. Absolutely. And so on that, I, I want to jump, I was going to say we've been pessimistic, but I'd say we've been very realistic in terms of the conversation we've had so far, but you are, you're living and breathing a, a, within a couple of businesses at the moment. So both Attentus and Rethink Sustainability, which are looking, their solutions orientated and really looking yep. at, well, how do you carry businesses forward? So can you give us, yep. I suppose, just a yeah, quick, overview of what each of those are so, and, and there's another one i mentioned called circular things so we've actually designed a uh, an urban fence which is a water tank so in other words if you're doing a property development of 200 subdivisions you could actually put this thing in all the fences you could fill up all the fences and you'd have you know maybe 10 megalitres of water that you could trade between neighbors for a housing or, estate yeah or trade between a or trade with the water authority. So as they treated water, they could fill up your fences and store the water. You could use it for whatever purpose. So that's a solutions-based outcome. So and there's another business doing water tanks as well, smart water tanks. Um, rethink sustainability. There's a range of things where a lot of focus currently. So we do sustainability advisory, and that ranges from advice on energy efficiency and sort of so energy management projects, including solar. Although we're not solar installers, right through to modern slavery. Uh, you know, sustainable development goals, um, you know, repositioning businesses, sustainability communication. Uh, we work with partners that do anything from carbon offsetting to ranging. So that's a really interesting and a whole lot of uh, products we actually recommend and advocate for, including, for example, a paint that knocks off pollution. It's just been accredited as knocking off coronavirus, paint called Airlite. Is that with Rethink uh, Sustainability? Yeah, so we're helping distribute that and getting that into, you know, road and rail tunnels, restaurants, aged care centres, that sort of stuff. 
um, got some really smart refrigeration software and stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of things that we that we present and promote to our clients to help them reduce their either energy footprint or their footprint on the planet. We're advising on you know sustainability planning, environmental management planning, um, and for, for big, some big companies. Uh, we've actually worked out, got a model called a virtual energy network. We're actually shifting energy around within a, like a, like, like a, a group or, or a membership. Um, we're working one of the big metropolitan councils. They've got 48 sites and we're distributing from two or three big roofs with solar, seven and a half million dollars worth of solar. We're going to reticulate those electrons around to 48 other sites. We can do that digitally and that's pretty clever. Uh, the other company, Attentus, uh, is an environmental monitoring technology. So this is really breakthrough stuff. It, it's beyond sort of internet of things, but smarter. So most IoT stuff is sort of, you, you'll have uh, a list of people listening who have got um, LoRaWAN or Sigfox, low powered, low energy networks doing soil moisture in paddocks and stuff like that. Um, Attendance has gone the other direction. It's gone high speed freeway data. So big data fast rather than low powered slow. Um, monitors every 30 seconds, monitoring all air quality, all weather information, uh, noise and, and uh, vibration, uh, thermal 360-degree thermal imagery, so it picks up ignition for bushfire, 360-degree visual imagery, so picking, so you've got video, high-res video recorded on a little device about so big, looks like R2-D2 on a post. So, so this is massive amounts of data in real time. So we're talking to a range, anything from energy companies and telcos to agriculturalists um, and sort of um, emergency services. We got two and a half pages in the New South Wales bushfire inquiry, bit of a mention in the Royal Commission on Fires as well as one of the leading technologies for detection of fire. So that's, that's pretty exciting. So that's right in my sort of wheelhouse. It's sort of weather, tech and air quality. So yeah. that's pretty cool. And can, so at the beginning, you said you weren't retiring or had no thoughts of retirement. But how on earth have you kept the energy up <laughs> for, for so long? But how, how do you, what is it that's really getting you out of bed at the moment and needing to stay involved? Um, you know, things need to be done better. Things need to be, it's a bit like, you know, I remember there used to be a bloke way before you were born, Holly, uh, called Marlon Perkins. He was like, like a naturalist on a, I think he worked out of the, zoo in San Diego in California and he did a test you know, with, with a raptor with, with an eagle and he put it and explained how an eagle's claw works and it works like a ratchet screwdriver right you, it'll go down and it can't go back and it go down it can't go back so when it grabs hold of a rabbit the more the rabbit struggles it just moves and it actually gets tighter and tighter and tighter and that's the way your brain works when you understand a lot of this stuff you actually you can't go back when you, when, when you know what the critical issues are and you learn about them and you know what can be done, well, my brain can't go, I can't say, oh, I got it, I'm going to go play golf. Yeah. You, you, you can't do that. Um, I, I can't anyway. Um, and I don't think most people operate like that. I mean, we, we are social, we are social, we are social animals, human beings. It's one of the problems we've got. We've got too many people living on their own in apartments in big cities and they're getting lonely and they've got, you know, mental health issues. We actually, um, I've actually had long discussions with my son um, about, and I grew up in a household where we had three generations and my mother advised me against it. Um, but I'm actually changing my mind. I think that mental health issues mean that that vertically integrated, you know, that family and an Italian family, for example, European families do it all the time. Grandma and grandpa and then it's the family and then the kids and everyone gets on and they've got that sorted. I don't think we've done that very well as well in Australia. But I think that our, coming back to my point, we, we are social animals and I think we work well in communities and I think that our innate response is to, is to do better for everybody. You know, we actually, you know, you want your society to thrive. If there are risks that you can identify, you need to try and address them. So, I mean, Ravina, with, with a grand, five-year-old granddaughter, your outlook changes, believe me. When I had a, my, my, my own children, I went, mm, that's interesting, because I've been banging and chatting about this stuff for a long time. But a granddaughter gives you that extra time horizon. 
Yeah. You're going, gee, by the time she's my age, what sort of, you know, she's get that's like, um, oh, gee. And you once said that you're, you said you once said that your generation is the first generation that won't be around to see the consequences of our actions. Yeah, it's a Barack Obama actually, or I don't know whether Barack said it first or me, but oh, we'll yeah. pretend yeah. it was you. It's exactly right. So I mean, the the Great Acceleration, as it's referred to, began in about 1970. So those three decades, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, did the damage. And we're continuing with that damage. I mean, uh, US emissions are actually declining. When George Bush said we're going to peak our emissions in 2025, I think he said, or 2030, they'd already started to decline. Uh, so the, the US is moving really strongly. Australia's emissions are static. We, haven't, we, we did reduce our emissions by 15% under the Gillard government, but they've gone back up again. Um, so it, it, those, those critical decades, uh, of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then the first decade of the, of the new millennium, we, we really didn't give it, you know, we just polluted the atmosphere as fast as we possibly can. So we're now, you know, we, we wasted a lot of time because we've known about really, you know, I've got two volumes, now they're another bookcase on Greenhouse. The first one was produced by CSIRO, I think, in 1982 or 85 or something like that. You know, we've known about this for a long time when we set our hands, invested interest that stopped us from moving in the right direction for the benefit of my granddaughter. Yeah. And I've got a final question which kind of flows on as well. It'll be your granddaughter in I don't know, another 13 years maybe. <laughs> but in terms of for, for young people in, you say, year 10 or 11, in terms of giving them some life advice, but also particularly around the opportunities for them beyond school in that sustainability space, the purpose-driven piece, what advice would you give to them? Okay, well, re-educate your parents is the first thing. It really, I really get upset when I hear, you know, if I'm speaking or someone will say, isn't it a great thing your kids are learning about that environment in school today? I said, well, firstly, it's not that environment. It's our environment. We're all part of it. And they've already got enough pressure on them. Don't put more pressure on them and make it their responsibility. They don't even, they don't even vote. Right. So for the under 18s in, the, in your audience, re-educate your parents, explain to them that they need to do things differently. They have to change rapidly for, for my sake, if I was the, the 15 year old. And you need to educate yourself about, um, you know, in the sort of things we've been talking about. I mean, the information's out there. It's a communications world. Social media provides you with an opportunity to listen to all sorts of stuff. And it goes back to, it's not what you hear, it's who you hear it from. I mean, go, so don't go to a newspaper journalist to, to get good science. Go to the American Association for the Advancement of Science or the Royal Society that's been around, you know, since Newton, right? Get your information from scientists and, and, and understand at first principles. So we need to make all of our decisions, all of us, um, you know, um, on, a, on a science basis. And we need to make individual decisions. So I mean, I mean the other way that we, I mean, we've now got, you know, there's a bit of money around for, we've now discovered recycling, right? I've been working on recycling campaigns since 1990. We really have, we've just got container deposit legislation in Victoria and they're saying, oh, you've got any good ideas? Well, no, yeah, no, we've got them. We know more. We don't need to, we just got to do it, got to begin. So, the, you know, the, when you go to the supermarket with mum or dad, have a look at, have a look at what you're putting in the basket, in the, in the shopping trolley. And then there's that, just to bring it home, there's always that aisle, you turn the aisle every time, you turn the corner and there's a double aisle with white plastic bottles full of chemicals, right? A, where does all the stuff inside those bottles go? In a city like Melbourne, a lot of it goes into Port Phillip Bay through Werribee Sewage Farm. Right? It gets washed off your best dollar down the sink or whatever, in your toilet or whatever. So be very careful of what you're purchasing, particularly in the way of chemicals, because most of it's not treated and goes to the bay or goes to uh, uh, Gunnamatta, a big sewage part of milk, or into a river or a stream in your city. And where does all the plastic go? Well, where does all the containers go? So your purchasing decision-making is something we can do every day. Your purchasing decision-making is critical. So that extends to who do you bank with, 
Where's your superannuation sit? Where's your money being invested? And everything you do, what sort of car do I drive? What sort of fuel do I buy? You know, how much energy am I using in the house? And, and can I re-educate mum and dad about that? So, you know, these are everyday decisions. So, I mean, it's a bit of, but it, 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 get your household right, then start influencing other people. And most, you know, I mean, you and, you know, the group behind you, I mean, you, you're much more articulate than I was at the same age, right? I was sort of, we didn't, young people were not encouraged to speak, would, would do a podcast, we didn't even know what a podcast was. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> on the wild. So you've got an opportunity to influence people and we only take all those opportunities. And the more people learn and congratulate your audience for listening to what you're doing, because you, you, you know, the, the whole premise of humans in agriculture is making that link. How do we work in the global ecosystem together around agriculture? Where, where are the influences, positive, negative, and otherwise, just knock out the negative ones and build on the positive ones? Absolutely. Wise words, Rob. I think I feel like this, this episode, normally I struggle a little bit trying to come up with something witty for an episode title, but I think we'll just call this one the School of Rob Gell. That's <laughs> <laughs> your podcast. <laughs> Well, on that note, I'd yeah, like to thank you very much for taking the time. It's good to chat to you again. It's been a while. Hopefully we can catch up when we are uh, got uh, coronavirus under control. And uh, best of luck with what you're doing, and I'll have a listen. Well, that's it for another week, and we're 33 episodes down, which is just insane. If you're anything like me in that episode, I was just writing dates and names and everything. It's a complete blur, but as I said at the beginning, I think... Rob's given me a hell of a lot to go and think about and uh, yeah, a person who I just want to sit down and pick his brain because geez, he's seen a lot and he knows a lot. I just don't know how people remember all the different details. Incredible. Anyway, you can find Rob's details in the show notes. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter. We've linked him in there and yeah, you can get in touch with him if you've got any questions. Um, the three businesses were called Circular Things, Attentus, and Rethink Sustainability. Look forward to joining you guys next week. And it's looking like we might only have another couple of weeks of podcasts left for the year as I'm heading away on harvest, but we'll just see how we get on. Look after yourselves, guys, and enjoy the freedom in Melbourne. <laughs>